In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. I was getting my teeth cleaned uh, a few months ago and was listening to my dental hygienist, which is uh, really wonderful because I enjoy getting my teeth cleaned, so I was very relaxed. And she's a good hygienist because she doesn't ask a lot of questions, you know, which are hard to answer when you've got your tooth full of, your mouth full of uh, instruments, you know. But she just talks very calmly about her own life and about her childhood and raising her family and her plans for her grandchildren and vacations and these kinds of things. It's uh, very soothing, I find. And after a couple of times, I, I suddenly realized her children are really doing well. They're really successful adults raising children of their own. And uh, the more I just heard, you know, she wasn't bragging. She was just talking incidentally. And I'd ask a question or two about, you know, what her children were doing. And I, I suddenly came to realize that she had been a fantastically successful mother, you know, and raised children who um, had become really well put together adults. And, uh, you know, I'm considered in my field an expert on child rearing. You know, I get paid to teach people about children and their mental health and these kinds of things. And I saw that I had a real professional, somebody who had really had a proven track record of success. And I asked her, what did she do to raise these children in this way? How had she been so successful? And she was kind of surprised by my question. She hadn't thought, oh, I've done really well. You know, for her, it's just normal life. And so she started to consider and she said, well, you know, my husband and I were on the same page. We were in agreement about what we were doing and we didn't listen to what the other parents were doing. We did what we knew was right. And lots of times, you know, our, our uh, friends or family or our own children would push back and say, why don't you let me do this or let me do that? And uh, she said, we just uh, were diligent in doing what we knew uh, to be right. And that discipline with which she raised them uh, transferred to their adulthood, thanks be to God. And this, I think, is what uh, we are reading today in the wisdom of Solomon and this beautiful passage about uh, living lives of righteousness and the consequences of righteousness. And there's a couple of them. Uh, the first is that the world doesn't like it. That when we live lives of holiness or righteousness, when uh, we say, I'm not going to lie for you, I'm not going to steal for you, I'm going to be honest, uh, even if it means uh, uh, you know, our friendship or acquaintanceship, um, if we uh, stand firm on what we know to be right, uh, then we're going to suffer for that. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised uh, that we're suffering for that. In fact, you might say that if we're not suffering because of living our lives righteously, we're probably not doing a very good job at it, right? We should have some pushback in our lives. This is the response of the world. I think hopefully most of us have had the experience of people saying, oh, go out and stay and, and uh, go out and party and uh, you know, don't uh, think about tomorrow and all the kinds of things that are, they're saying in the wisdom of Solomon, right? To live life now, live it fast, uh, you know, don't think about tomorrow, don't think about the consequences, uh, just be in the moment. And when we say, no, I'm going to uh, live my life uh, soberly and dutifully, uh, they take it as condemnation and criticism of themselves, right? They become angry. What are you doing? Are you saying that I'm not a good person? Are you saying that I'm not, you know, as good as you are, right? They take it as condemnation. It's a natural reaction to those that have uh, made a covenant with death, have decided that uh, there will be no consequence for sin. 
And so when we propose that there will be a consequence, uh, they take that as condemnation upon themselves. Rather than repenting and turning to God in righteousness, uh, they become angry with us. That is um, what we see over and over again. And what the wisdom of Solomon is doing is showing how uh, we have to have a covenant with life. We have to have a covenant with uh, what he calls the secret purposes of God. The secret purposes of God. What are the secret purposes of God? The secret purpose of God um, isn't such a secret. The secret is uh, that he is going to sacrifice himself for us, that he is uh, going to lay down his life for us so that he can abide with us, so that he can tabernacle with us. That is the secret purpose of God. He wants to tabernacle, to abide with us, to dwell in us. It says it over and over again in scripture, and we see that sacrifice over and over again, don't we, about that desire of God to tabernacle with us. And his tabernacle is a holy place. And he tells the people of God over and over again, if you want to come into my temple, if you want to come into my presence, if you want to abide with me, you have to uh, live according to my ways. You have to live in holiness and righteousness. And so uh, we know that the consequence of living righteously again is uh, that we will have the hope for the wage of holiness. The, the hope of that wage is, again, to be in the presence of God. That's our hope, to be in his presence, to be in his resurrection, to be in his everlasting life. And the prize for blameless souls, of course, again, is to be in his presence and to um, have his uh, dwelling with us, to have his uh, presence and his holiness with us. This is our hope. This is our prize to tabernacle and to dwell with God. The beautiful thing about this writing here with the wisdom of Solomon is how uh, timely it is. Uh, how uh, prophetic it is and how near to the fulfillment of its prophecy. We've seen this prophecy over and over again about uh, what God is going to do to transform the world, how he's going to do it through sacrifice. We read it all the way back in Genesis. We read it again in the prophet Isaiah and the minor prophets. And now we're reading it only 30 years before the time of Christ. The Wisdom of Solomon is uh, the last book of the Old Testament or what is sometimes called the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha. It's those books that were written between the exile into Babylon and the coming of Christ, about a 500-year period when the Jews were writing in Greek. And so this is the last of those books uh, written in Greek, only about 30 years before the time of Christ. And you can see how accurately uh, the ministry of Christ is portrayed in this first chapter of the wisdom. What does it say? This is the voice of those, again, who persecute Jesus. This is right out of the passion of the Gospels, right? We read these words in the passion of the Gospels. Let us test him with insult and torture that we may find out how gentle he is, right? This is what those who plot against Jesus say. We'll see how gentle he is. We'll see if he's able to keep saying that uh, God is his father once we persecute, right? Let us condemn him to a shameful death. This is exactly what they do by putting Jesus on the cross, by hanging him on wood. This is the, the shameful death with which Jesus suffers. So this is uh, exactly what Jesus fulfills uh, in the Gospels as he uh, does and receives all of the condemnation of the world. 
and that God is willing to humble himself and lower himself and to receive this condemnation and this test is exactly what Jesus is telling the disciples here in Mark chapter 9. He tells them that this is his plan. And uh, we read that um, this is the second time in Mark's gospel that he's done this. The second time that he's told them about his uh, coming death and his resurrection. So it's the second time they've heard it. They've heard it many times throughout all the scriptures of the Old Testament. And uh, now that they've heard it this second time, they understand it maybe even less than they did before. They're still totally confused, right? Because they're not understanding this humility uh, with which God is going to come and serve. In fact, we get a wonderful kind of uh, comparison or we get a kind of juxtaposition, a contrast between God's humility and meekness on our behalf and the pride and arrogance of the world. So as soon as Jesus says, I'm coming to die, the disciples have a conversation about what? Who's the greatest? Right? They've not only missed the boat, they've gone right on past it at full speed, right? Jesus is saying, here I'm going to teach you meekness, and they're saying, yeah, I think I'm pretty great, probably better than you, right? Which we have to be able to laugh at because we should be able to relate to it, right? In fact, if we can't relate to this conversation of the disciples, we're not going to get anything out of it. If you can't relate to just, you know, um, jockeying for position and, and trying to prove, uh, you know, how much we know or, you know, what we've done, our successes, then um, this gospel isn't going to make any sense, right? Uh, but it's human nature. It's that human uh, nature to try to, to show our, our merit, right? To try to show ourselves and how um, good it is that we've done. And Jesus is saying this is exactly the opposite of how it is that we're supposed to minister. And in fact, he says uh, that in our ministry, in our service for the kingdom of God, our focus needs to be on those who can't return the goodness that we minister so he uses a child as an example, right? Because as I like to say when I go into daycares, the problem with the daycares is the children don't have any money, right? They don't have any pockets because if they were uh, good customers and they had money, they would be demanding a lot better service than they get in daycares, right? The problem is they can't pay for it. So what do they have to do? They have to rely upon the goodwill of those that care for them. If you've ever had to rely on other people's goodwill for good service, you know how hard that is to come by, right? This is our job as Christians. We're supposed to be offering the best of what we have to those who have no way to pay for it. No way to return the favor. No way to, to give us uh, anything in return. And that's what the children are in this example. The children are those that have nothing to give in return. Nothing, no prestige to offer. No kudos to give. All they can offer is thankfulness. And really that's who we are to God, right? He is uh, accepting us as little children. We have nothing to offer for salvation. We have uh, nothing that we can give to God. There's nothing that we can give in return. It's all out of His compassion to us that we receive His salvation, that we receive His love. And that's how we're supposed to minister. We're supposed to be ministering to one another and to the world without expectation of return, out of uh, the love of God for his people, out of compassion uh, for those that cannot return or pay for the favor. Easier said than done to live that kind of life. And St. James, the just, who's the brother of Jesus, by St. Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
is telling us about how to live this way. He's telling us about how it is that we're supposed to live this life of humility and righteousness. And he says what we have to have around us is we have to have godly counsel. We have to have people um, who can uh, show the way of holy living to us. And he talks about uh, who it is that we're supposed to come to and, and, and who it is that we're supposed to seek for this godly counsel and instruction. That's what um, James is talking about here in chapter 3. We're kind of coming in in the middle of this um, advice that he's giving to the church, this instruction that he's giving to the church about how to find this godly counsel. And he's talking about the, the character of the person that we're supposed to be looking for. He's saying that we're looking for somebody who's not just jealous or selfish we're looking for somebody who's peaceable right somebody who's gentle who's open to reason who's full of mercy who has good fruits right they, we can see the evidence in their lives we can see the fruit and the way they've lived their life we can say oh you've done that well right somebody who's impartial and sincere you get to the end of this list and if you're like me you think I'm not sure if I've met that person, right? This is a pretty incredible person. This is the high standard that the church has for those that we're going to go to. Not somebody who's going to lord it over us or somebody that's going to be um, you know, pushy or somebody who's going to be flattering or any of these things, but somebody who has um, the evidence of the fruit of the work that they're going to do. And he, he gives again and again throughout his book, and what James is famous for is he's saying that faith and works are two sides of the same coin, right? In the first century, and especially in the Reformation, there's been people that have been trying to pry faith and works apart, right? Trying to separate them and make them to be opposed to one another. And this is ridiculous, right? So ridiculous that St. James calls it the practice of an adulterous generation. Isn't that a great uh, example to give? He calls it adulterous to separate faith from works. Here's an example. If I tell you, well, I married Aaron, I gave the uh, vows at our marriage ceremony, right? So I'm married to her, I'm a good husband because I said that I would do all those things and I went through the ceremony and she's a really great person and I like her, but I don't go home or share any of my money with her. You all are going to say, Father Howard, you're confused about what it is to be a good husband, right? And you better shape up. And if I don't respond to that, your duty is to call the bishop. That's one of the reasons why he came and visited last week, right? So you can put a face with the name and you know who you're supposed to call if I don't respond to godly counsel, right? If I say it just matters what I say with my mouth and the promises that I've made and the religious ceremonies that I've gone through, but there's no work in my being a husband, right? The other can be true too. I can go home every night and I can pay the bills and I can do all those things. But then if I badmouth Aaron or I say bad things about her, I'm constantly critical of her, right? And uh, I say, well, you know, I can say whatever I want or I'm constantly looking at other women or I'm talking about how great other women are, but I still go home every night and pay my bills. Hopefully you're going to say the same thing. You're going to say, Father Howard, you're confused about what it means to be a good husband, right? You've got to have faith and works. You've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. You've got to do both. And to say that you can do one or another is patently ridiculous. Why is it we can see that with marriage or with friendship, but we can't see it in our relationship with God? How quickly we let ourselves off the hook and deny ourselves the opportunity to live beautiful lives. Beautiful lives of holiness that we're called to and given amazing examples of. 
people of integrity and of faith and of love who are practicing work and showing the fruit in our lives. And St. James is saying, do not deny yourselves that blessing. Do not deny yourselves that blessing. He says, ask the Lord. And he says, the reason that you're not getting the things that your heart rightly hopes for, belonging, to be known by God, to have a purpose, to have fulfillment and meaning, he says the reason you're not getting those things is because you're asking wrongly. You're asking for all this stuff. He says, if you would ask rightly, God would be faithful and he would provide. He would provide. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Again, over and over again, he is jealous to dwell in us. God is jealous to dwell in us. He desires so powerfully to be with us, but he opposes the proud. Because we're not going to let him in if we think that we're enough. We're only going to be able to open wide enough to say, Lord, I need you. I, I need you to be in my life. I need you to show me the way. I need you to provide the love. I need your compassion. I need your ways to have the humility, the humility to receive his grace. To say, I need your grace. I went to work early one day this week and uh, the fill-in janitor was there. I love to be able to be there early enough to talk with the janitors. They're some of the best people that I work with, even though they leave almost right after I get there. And this fill-in janitor I found out was 72 years old, still emptying trash cans. I said, why are you working still at 72? Do you have to? He said, no, I'm afraid if I go home and watch TV, I'll die. So I'm going to keep working until they haul me out of here. So I asked him a few more questions, and he started to tell me about his family and all the things that he was doing, and all of a sudden I realized his children are really successful. They're doing really well. Three sons out of three are officers in the military. His daughter is working in finance and ministering to their families and faithful. I said, how did you do that? How did you raise these children this way? And he said, because I knew that I couldn't. And I asked God for help and said, I can't do it without you. And he said, I've said that every day. I can't do it without you. And he said, it's never been a burden, but a joy to minister to them and to take out the trash and to clean the toilets so that I can serve them. And they call me the professional. I think that all of our families should talk to my dental hygienist and my janitor, those who have borne true fruit in serving their children and those who cannot repay. We are called to abide with God and to be ministers to those who cannot return the favor. We are made to be ambassadors to the world. We are made to share his love with those who are in need. And if we ask, he will be faithful and give us all that we need to share that love and compassion with boldness and with grace and with humility.